You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers. This is an episode of What's Up in Dramaland with Saya, Anissa, and Boroma. Hello, dear listeners. This is Anissa. We recorded this episode very soon after the recent mass murder of eight people, six of whom were Asian, in the U.S. state of Georgia. In it, we talk about our anger and sadness over what happened, the discourse around anti-Asian racism and racism in general, and practical strategies for getting through it and hopefully making things better. We also try to bring some context to last week's cancellation of Chosun Exorcist. Please check out the extended show notes linked in the description for resources related to this episode, including an excellent overview of what happened in Georgia and the historical context of anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. by the Code Switch podcast for those unfamiliar. We hope that, if you're part of a community that has been hit hard in the last year, not only by COVID, but by the systemic racism that hard times like these only exacerbate, you're holding up all right and finding what you need to get you through. Listeners, thank you for always being so thoughtful and communicative with us, not only when it comes to squeeing over the dramas we love, but about the important ways that stories shape and impact our real lives. A special shout out to our beloved patrons, not only for your much appreciated support, but also because we finally have extras to share with you. We've started a new patron-exclusive series called Below the Line, additional mini-episodes to go with each regular What's Up in Dramaland or Yak, where we gab about the stuff we couldn't fit into the main episode. Enjoy, and as always, thank you. Find our page at patreon.com slash dramasoverflowers. And now, let's get into the episode. Hi everyone, this is Saya. This is Anissa. And this is Parma. Welcome to the What's Up in Drama Land for the month of April. Ah, great to see everyone again after the massive one-week hiatus since our last recording. That's that's true. It's been too long. You guys have changed. <laughs> but I mean, on a more serious note, um, since we did last record, a lot has happened. So we just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about, well, if you've been paying attention to American news, there was a really tragic shooting in Atlanta and a man shot and killed eight people. Um, Six of them were Asian American. And if you've been following the news coverage around that, it's just, you know, like it's unfortunately given the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year because of all of the rhetoric that Trump was spreading about, you know, how it was like a Chinese virus and, you know, all, all this xenophobia that rose in the last year. It's unfortunately not surprising, but it's still very shocking and upsetting. And for the Asian American community, it's been really, really uh, just it's been, I guess, a big moment for a lot of conversations that people have been trying to have for a long time that have been going on for a long time, suddenly being up front and in public and in the mainstream. And I think there are a lot of things about it that are obviously the tragedy itself is really, really upsetting and a lot of people are grieving and and they're scared. But it's also a feeling of like, why do people have to die before you take something like this seriously? A lot of activists have been warning since the first sort of big spike in this kind of rhetoric that it was going to cause this kind of harm. And people were like, ah, it's no big deal. It's not that bad, whatever. And we've seen this with other groups as well, right? Like after 9-11, all of the not just the rhetoric, but like the all the wars and the and the you know the propaganda and the the really aggressive painting of Muslims and Arabs and brown people as the enemy and a threat and violent. 
it had real world consequences for people then. It's still having consequences for them now. And we've seen that in like terms of real people, you know, getting beat up and also getting killed. And, you know, so that, I mean, this is a part of a really long pattern, unfortunately, in American imperialism and white supremacy and xenophobia. And it's just, you know, and it's already a pandemic. So it's already been a really hard year. And this is just on top of that. So uh, we just wanted to take some time, not only to talk about this, but just, I don't know, just kind of reflect on how that makes us feel as, you know, like we're in, where we talk about Asian dramas, we talk about Korean dramas. And like, you know, I think our approach throughout this last year has been to acknowledge that people are having a rough time and to sort of talk about issues that come up in our own ways. Like last year when things came to a really high pitch for the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, like after we saw all the videos of, you know, George Floyd's really terrible murder and everything else that kind of has been building for many years but came to a really strong strong point last year, not only in the United States, but in a lot of places. I know um, Saya in London as well and in England, you know, people were were in the streets and they were protesting. So like we kind of have been addressing those things organically as they come up when it's related to drama, but also like we want to provide a space for people that's thoughtful, but also still kind of joyful. And, you know, like we we try to enjoy the things that we love while also being responsible about what that media means for us in the real world and how it affects people. And, you know, like, we hope that we've been doing a good job. Yeah, I didn't mean for this to become like a monologue. I just I was kind of just sharing my thoughts. But um, if you do have anything else to add to that, or if you... I think that what a lot of people want to know now, uh, especially people who are not Asian or who are not, uh, who don't identify with a marginalized community, what they want to know is what can they do? Like, what does it mean to be anti-racist? Because you can see that, you know, even if there are places or groups that haven't sort of spoken up before, once it comes home, you know, you're, you have no choice left but to speak up. But in that situation, what is there that people can do beyond saying, we support you, what can you do? Like, what form should their anti-racism take? And... I think one of the things that I wanted to observe, and we've talked about this offer, which is that like what kind of narratives of racism or anti-racism are helpful and which ones are not? Because I feel like what we've been witnessing is is two types uh, or at least two types of narrative. And like one of them, I actually find genuinely unhelpful as well as retrogressive, which is to say that is to ask people, you know, who are not, who don't identify with these groups, who aren't POC, who aren't um, Asian or who aren't black or who are part of a dominant majority group, is to ask them to sort of, you know, look at us and look at the beauty that we have in our cultures, look at the good things that we bring to your, to your culture, look at the ways we can enrich you. And that's not untrue, but that reduces the dialogue to a question of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Like human rights should not be given out on the basis of whether someone has something to offer you or whether you recognize what they have as something valuable. You know, basic citizenship rights should not be contingent on whether you value someone else's culture or identity or not. Because that that leads to this false narrative of, you know, if only they could see the good that we have. 
that's irrelevant. Like how good or how bad or how valuable, all of those things are irrelevant. It also creates a hierarchy of good immigrants versus bad immigrants, right? Like this is that like quote exactly. unquote good immigrant model narrative minority. that people have yeah, been using model, exactly. for such a long time. Yeah, not only the model minority, but like any immigrant who comes to contribute. Right. Yeah, they come, you know, through an accepted, uh, you know, like they're legal immigrants. They're they did all of the quote unquote like the right things. They're hardworking. The right they yeah. yeah, exactly. And so then that like ends up putting like undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. and like, um, you know, people who the the majority society doesn't see as useful, and that makes them sort of excluded and says, oh, well, you have to you have to earn your place here. Like, we're not going to value your life and agree that you are that you should be protected from harm only because you're a human being. You have to be, you know, a good immigrant. There's a really good um, article about this by Bettina McAllenthal, um in Vice, which I'll link. But she said, like, she's been seeing signs like love us like you love our food. And she's just talking about how, like, why that's harmful. Basically, we don't want people to love us because our food is delicious. We don't because that's like, oh, like consume us literally <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and, and and I think sometimes that happens with some fandoms, too. Right. Like we love this thing that is made by Asian people. And it's there can sometimes be an element of like consuming something mm-hmm. and not not necessarily also wanting to be close to the people who make it. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's like something that black people talk a lot about black culture. They're like, well, you want black culture, but you don't actually want black people. You know, like if you if you enjoy the things that we've created, but you're not willing to, you know, let us have full rights, then what is that? That's just that's just like exploitation and, and you know, cultural appropriation. So like it, it's a complicated conversation, but I agree that these narratives of like, let's all just come together and accept that we're all human like that. That has a limit to that's all lives matter. It, right. It's not yeah. helpful. Exactly. It, it seems, you know, like just this idea of fighting hate with love. I think it's a really appealing like it's rhetorically appealing, but there's no way to implement that in real world problems, especially when you, you know, if you cannot understand racism as a system, mm-hmm. you know, not an event, which, you know, that's a whole discussion that people really, really need to learn about. Because if you reduce racism down to individual acts and individual events, then you take away, it willfully ignores the institution's that enact that racism in a systemic way against an entire group of people. And you're so right. I agree with you. And that's what's frustrating me the most is that continuously, whenever anything like this happens and there's a huge outcry against something like this, there immediately is this turn towards like individual. Re- like we talked about this in the bullying uh, episode that we just released with Professor Cedar Balseji, where like there's this immediate turn towards looking at the individuals in the situation. And I mean, I also laugh at the, not laugh, but, you know, there's a certain enjoyment of taking down an individual racist in one of these, like, publicly, you know, these viral posts about, like, a a Karen or whatever, you know, and someone who's just being horrible and then everybody, like, talks about how horrible they're being and then that person faces some type of consequences like they get fired or whatever. But like that kind of narrative really takes away the focus from the institutions and structures of power that are systematically oppressing and 
disenfranchising and marginalizing people and just makes it all about individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. And like that kind of, whether that's like villainizing particular people or in a positive way being like, just love each other. Like either way, Mm -hmm. like both sides of that, it just, I think by design puts the responsibility on the individual rather than on the society because like people don't want to commit to the kind of structural and institutional change that will fundamentally make them feel bad about the society that they're living in and benefiting from. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes people uncomfortable. And it also puts the burden of solving racism on the people who are um, victimized by it rather than the enactors of it. And that's when you sort of zoom out of there and you you know you take away the labels, it, it's not up to victims to resolve the the things that they are suffering from. Like racism is not a problem of people of color. It's something that people of color are experiencing because of racists, right? Mm -hmm. So racism can only be solved at the level where the racists Unracify, unracicize themselves. That's not a word. <laughs> but you, know what, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. not up to people of color to fix racism. It's on the people who are racist. The people who are racist and the people who are passively putting up with racism and passively benefiting from racism and the structures that are associated with. I do think that there's a perception and I mean, obviously, like we all live in different countries. So we're all coming at this with our own experiences and the particular structures that exist in our own society. Right. But like in my experience, there is this tendency to be like, look at this particularly vile and racist act. Everyone can agree that that's bad. Unfortunately, even those acts have become very much more accepted in the last four years because people who are in like extremely high positions of government have just been like, yeah, this is fine. Let's do it and have been doing it. But so even those things that I used to think were like so bad that most people will be embarrassed to do them. My thoughts have changed on that as well. But like there is a perception that like unless it's at that level, like unless somebody is, you know, hurling slurs at you and like beating you up, like everything else is fine. But that's Really, the majority of racism that people face is not those acute incidents of violence and terror and murder. It's like your daily experience of life. And it's Mm. so easy for people to just gaslight people of color Mm. um, and black people and just be like, oh, like, but are you sure they were being Mm. racist? And the thing is, you're not sure yourself. Like if you apply for a job and you didn't get it. I mean, I don't know if that's a good example, but, you know, we know that there are barriers to employment when it oh, comes absolutely. to, you know, racial profiling. Yeah, You will never know. Uh, and that's like, uh, I was reading an article, I think I read this years ago, so I, I can't tell you where it was, but um, the uncertainty of never knowing whether something is because of your race or whether there was something you could have done to get a particular thing to achieve this to to get in there or you know that's yeah. a level of uncertainty that every person of color carries around you don't know if someone was mean to you that day because they were racist because they're not going to come out outright and you know like you say it's not always a slur sometimes they just you just are treated badly and you don't know mm-hmm. if it's because of y- you individually or if it's because someone looked at you and made an assumption about you right I always feel like I can deal better when it's personal because it's like, okay, I get why you would not like me personally. I can agree with that. 
And also the the thing that is so infuriating is like like this type of thinking and this type of like denial and gaslighting, it goes then even like it spreads even into things that are so obviously racially motivated. So like, for example, it allows, you know, the the sheriff who did the press conference after the Atlanta shooting to be like, oh, he was just having a bad day. Like it wasn't he said he wasn't ra- racially motivated. Like it was because of his sex addiction, which is such BS. But like, like we don't need to go into all the reasons that the, why that was BS. Like it's very obvious. But I mean, it reminds me a lot of, you know, right after the Chapel Hill shooting here in my community in 2015, the police immediately said, oh, it was a it was a parking dispute. And that's what stuck until the end of the trial, you know, and that was like years. And but then also by the time the trial happened and that guy was put away for murder, nobody was paying attention anymore. So like at that time, after he was convicted, that's when the police apologized like years later. And like it doesn't matter at that point because the narrative that's what the narrative became. They were killed because of a parking dispute. No, they were killed because as soon as Thea's wife moved in with her hijab and like that man realized that he wasn't actually white and you know her sister started coming over and their muslim friends started coming over like he just started harassing them like with a gun you know like and showing up at their house so like that was a pattern and they were afraid and then he killed them in a really brutal way but immediately it's like oh well it couldn't be racism like it's just this dismissal of the experience there's always a good reason why you brought it onto yourself well when a white man kills you like there's 10 mm. million excuses for why he could have done it right but if a if somebody else of a different race had had been the one who perpetrated the crime like they immediately go to the most mm. like racist explanation that also like demonizes an entire race of people or an entire religion of people or you know like it's just i'm so tired y'all but the thing is at one point you can't do it alone. You need the people who have created the system, the people who are up, uh, up, who are upholding the system. I nearly said uploading because I'm watching Sisyphus too much. The people, who, <laughs> the people who are benefiting from the system. All of those people, like at every level, like you need such a big upheaval to sort of break those systems. And that's not going to happen if we can't recognize that the system itself is problematic to begin with. Yeah. And it's been a it's been kind of a triggering week and a half, honestly. I feel like what really takes away from when we have this discussion is that people of color are always asked to center whiteness in everything. And our priority, even when we talk about racism, even when we're talking about the oppression of our own communities, when we're talking about crimes against our communities, when we're talking about you know massacres and murders and genocides, we still have to center the feelings of white people and how they feel about people of color's oppression. And that makes it impossible to do anything. Like, dear white people... <laughs> We acknowledge that it's upsetting and uncomfortable for you to face the ways in which you may be actively or passively implicit in the enactment of racism and at the very lowest level beneficiaries of it. We can acknowledge that, but you have to deal with it because it's not our job to take on the burden of your emotions. And we can't handhold you through this to tell you that you're a good person. We're all good people. You're good people. We're good people, but we're also bad people. And we have to examine the bad in ourselves and we have to take action on that. Like it's not enough to say, sometimes saying words is all you can do, 
But often, and especially with people who are part of a dominant culture, there's more that you can do. So if you're not going out there doing something, changing it with your hands, you know, to go a bit Muslim here, it's a principle of our religion, which is that if you see some evil occurring, go and change it with your hands. You know, take action, do something actually physical. And if you can't do that, then change it with, you know, your tongue, like speak up. And if you are not able to change things via your actions and you're not able to change it via, you know, your speech, then at the very least, hate it in your heart. But that's like the minimum level. Yeah. And the whole, the soft approach is so appealing because it doesn't ask you to do anything. It just types up, you know, type out some outrage, type out some support. This is terrible. I support you. And that's needed. It's necessary, but it's not the most that you can do. Please do more. I really agree so much about what you said, Saya, about like, don't ask us to take on the burden of your emotions. Uh, yeah, because we're already dealing with the burden of racism. So <laughs> you can handle your own emotions. Exactly. And the other thing is that I think, especially Americans, I'm guessing this is the same in most. It is the same in Canada for sure. But I think in most white settler colonial nations, like there is such a huge historical amnesia about all of the history of racism and the history of like institutional exclusion and and marginalization of non-white people that like there is a huge inertia to that amnesia, you know, and it's it's all tied up in like myth making mm. and nationalism and patriotism. So like you have to make the effort to go and learn the real history of the place that you live in. Like if you're an American and you don't know anything about the genocide against Native Americans whose land we are literally still stealing up till this day and living on, like educate yourself, you know, like <laughs> if you don't know about the history of, I would hope that people would know the history of slavery, but even some people don't even know that. Like there are still Southern states. I, like I went to high school in North Carolina. My U.S. history teacher told me that the Civil War was fought over states' rights. You know, yeah, the states' what? rights to own to own people. Like that's oh, right. that's okay. what they. I mean, yeah. he's not wrong. People are still whitewashing this history, even though it's so egregious. And I mean, go and read um, the the 1619 project. That was an amazing project that was done by. Um, Oh my gosh, I can, cannot recall her name right now, but she's an amazing journalist. I will link it in the description, but it was through the New York Times magazine. And like the history of anti-Asian racism goes back to like the 1800s when they mm. first brought Chinese laborers here to work on the railroads. And they were like, actually, we don't want you. We just wanted your free labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a long history and a lot of people have been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. The information is out there and people have been doing this scholarship for a really long time. So you can't just wait for people. You can't just be like, oh, please educate me. I didn't know about this. Like, we have to do the work. Google exists. Go and Google it. Yeah. And then, like, once you've done the work of educating yourself, then the next step is action. And, like, mm -hmm. we can all, we all have different lives and circumstances and we can all figure out what, what we can do. Um, we can all do something. But, you know, when we say do something, we don't even always mean like, you know, you don't have to. It's not something drastic and huge. Sometimes it's just speaking up when your racist relative says something. It's when you see something, you know, we have this thing. I don't know if you guys have it, but it's like if anyone's traveled in London, you'll see it everywhere. See something, say something. Oh, they have it here, too. Oh, yeah. And of course, guess who that's about? That's about oh, like, yeah. you and me. Uh-huh. It's about <laughs> 100%. us. 100%. It's prevent. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's about Muslims. Mm -hmm. But yeah, 
It also can work in reverse. If you see people being racist, speak up, stand up. Be willing to... I'm not saying be willing to risk your life or yourself or your safety, but like be willing to stand with people who are experiencing that risk. Be willing to risk your work and personal relationships if necessary, because if you can't do that much, if you're afraid that your colleagues would not want you to hang out with them because <laughs> you spoke up that time or your friends find you uncomfortable because you won't let them crack those uncomfortable jokes. Mm. That is something that you have to stand up, be strong and deal with. Yeah. Yep. And I'm thinking like as you're saying this, I'm thinking of the friends that I've lost in the last year because of this. You will lose people. Yeah. But like, again, you can't go back into silence, right? Like once you start standing up. Mm. That's true. That's true. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend uh, a while back, uh, a white friend, who, and we were talking about this particularly, like, in the light of what happened last year. And what my friend was saying is that I recognize that on most days, I will say something. But on a day that I don't feel too good, I might just be like, I'm going to let that pass. And like, with that, I recognize that that's my privilege that I'm able to choose when to have that argument or when to have that fight or when to let it get to me or when to let it go. Whereas a person of color doesn't have that choice. And like, you know, just even an acknowledgement like that, it's a big acknowledgement. Once you reflect on yourself and you're able to see the ways in which you may not always live up to your ideals, isn't that a way to motivate you to do better next time. That's all we're saying. Do better next time. Uh, also, though, mm-hmm. go on. No, I just don't want this to become like a... Don't let yourself off the hook. No, no. I don't want this to just be a conversation that we're now suddenly having with our white listeners because I really want to send love out to our listeners of color. Like we have listeners all over the world and we really... I feel like one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast is to have a place where we could talk about the things that matter to us. Uh, you know, like a safe environment between friends who are willing to have the hard conversations. And we've welcomed all of you in and we are so blessed that you all listen to us and that you have joined us. But like you were saying earlier, Saya, like it often goes so quickly to just talking about like what can white people do and how are they feeling? Um, but I want to... Did I just, just do that? Check in. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I think you were trying not, uh, you think you were trying to like point out that it was a problem and that it kind of just happened. But I really want to like give true. a shout out to our listeners of color, our black listeners, our Asian listeners. You know, like we really love you. We value you. We know it's been a really tough like year at this point. Like it's been a little over a year since the pandemic hit. And we know it's been like a really, 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 really tough time, especially if you have, you know, you're not only dealing with like, the virus, but also people trying to kill you. Yeah, just everything that comes along with being in your skin and being in the place that we live. And I I just want to say that, like, just because we don't always talk about it on the podcast, I mean, we try our best in our own ways. Like, I think a lot of the, the sort of the impetus for the representation special that we did last summer was because we were thinking about this stuff so much, but we wanted to really, we didn't just want to start talking Um, And putting our voices out there when it was really, we wanted to like be 
sort of listening a lot more to our Black community members. So we we do our best, but we also don't always talk about it on the podcast because sometimes we're just like, the world is crap. Let's talk about K-dramas, you know? Like, but but we're always thinking about this stuff. We're always sending our love out to all of you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense, but that's that was just in my heart and I wanted to say it. Oh, I completely agree. And I also apologize because <laughs> I just realized after listening to you how it did sound. I feel for me, primarily when we do this, I'm talking to you guys. I'm first talking to people who understand our perspective from an inside point of view. And then I realize actually they're not the only people who are listening to us. There are also people who are not like us in in terms of, you know, who are not the same color as we are, who are not from the same backgrounds as we are, who are experiencing their K-dramas through a different filter from us. So I want to say to our dear listeners of color that I'm not excluding them, but that I assumed that I was talking to them first. Mm. No, no, I knew you were, but I just, I didn't, yeah, I just wanted to kind of clarify that because the listeners don't share a high yeah. brain. So. <laughs> I didn't want to um, jump in <laughs> in the middle of that discussion, though I kind of did a bit, um, because it's not my experience, not my lived experience. I've never been a minority. I don't know what it's like to be systemically oppressed. I mean, unless you count the fact that I'm a woman in India. <laughs> so there <laughs> is some of that. But it's, I honestly don't, I, I don't know what it's like. I mean, I know what it's like from what I've read, what I've consumed, but that's all secondhand experience. So I'm the privileged <laughs> person holding the mic in this trio. And this this thing that you said a little earlier about Anita, about how we are speaking uh, to our white listeners, but we should also consider the people of color around the world who are listening to us. Fact of the matter is people of color around the world, most of them aren't minorities, they're majorities in their own countries, and they are doing their fair share of oppression. I know that the group, the ethnic religious group that I would be a part of, we are doing our fair share of aggressive oppression right now in this country. And what Saya said really struck with me, which is that I try to actively support the movement that resists my government's attempts to take away rights from certain groups. However, when I get tired of it, I can choose to step back. And I often do. If I feel mentally overwhelmed, if I'm feeling really stressed, really sad. For instance, I was going through a really tough time, not like tough time as in like it was a bad time for me, but just that I was going through a lot of stress. So I just stopped watching the news for like a month. And I can do that because right now, immediately, my rights and privileges are not under threat. I can choose to do that. And honestly, it's probably not fine because the fight isn't going anywhere. It's not taking a break for a month while I shut my eyes and ears and just focus on myself. I might have to do it for my own mental health. And I will always give myself, I will always allow myself to do that, even though I know that the fight is going nowhere. But when I I am over that time of... (laughs) self-pity and self-reflection I have to go back in and do as much supporting and be as vocal as possible because people around me they don't understand guys um you might not even know what I'm talking about so just like look up what the Indian government is doing in terms of oppression just google it I it's gonna take too much time to explain everything but I 
want to resist it till the last breath, pretty much. But again, I'm not the one directly under threat. So I take my breaks, then I get up, then I, I attend protests, I am vocal online, I speak up in friend groups, but more importantly, in family groups, because there are so many members of my families who don't seem to understand that human rights should trump their own self-interest. It's, it's, amazing. It's not just your racist uncle that you have to fight. This this thing is a universal experience, trust me. So that's my two bits about the silence I allow myself and um, the resistance that I force myself to do because that is all I can do and how little all of it matters at the end because I know I'm not doing enough. And yeah, it's just I, I, all of those, all of that guilt and stuff that white people suffer and constantly complain about. Hey, why do I have to feel guilt about my ancestors? Yeah, you don't have to feel guilt about your ancestors' the behavior and, and history. You, you have to feel guilt about what's happening right now. It's not it's not about what 200 years ago your ancestor did to this other country. No, 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 dude. What are you doing right now? So just I am living with my own guilt. OK, so deal with your own guilt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Pete, that is actually, that's really beautiful to hear. I have to say you have put that really wonderfully. Um, but also I want to say that, like what you say about taking a break and how you have to take that break, I agree. And this is the thing about the work. The more people who do the work, the less burden it is on the individual. Yes. So every person who adds themselves to this effort, you are allowing us to spread that burden so that we too can take a break, right? So maybe there will come a day where the people of color can take, you know, a six minute bathroom break. I hope like <laughs> this, these are the things that we're aiming for. The more people who are involved in doing this, one, the more power you have, the more social power you have, the more political power you have, the more financial power you bring to it. Like people's efforts add up, individuals add up. And also burden divides. So it's it's hopeful. This is a nice hopeful message to leave this topic on, I think. <laughs> yeah. And just to agree with what you said, Borama, and also like what I meant about, you know, people of color around the world. You're so right. I am coming from a, an ethnic minority in my own country, in the countries that I've lived in. But obviously, every situation is different, right? But I guess I also just want to acknowledge that like, the historical structures of imperialism and the ones that are still happening today also play a part. So it's complex. So you might be living in a country that has got an ethnic majority that is, you know, marginalizing other people. And then also they might have to be dealing with like external imperial forces that are also influencing things in a certain way. And there is a global hierarchy of power too. And that also complicates things. So it's it's muddy. But I think like, as you said, Varma, the principle is still there, you know, about having more power and being able to do more because of that power. And yeah, I love what you said, Saya, about sharing the burden. I think that's a great place to end it. It's also a great place to slip into the cancellation of Chosun Exorcist. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is <laughs> our uh, next story. Which is lighter material compared to well, everything we covered before. Um, it's, it's light because we're outsiders. Yeah, of course. Mm. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there's been a lot of brouhaha about uh, how first Joseon uh, Exorcist, it, it just aired two episodes and um, we heard a lot about how Korean viewers were not happy with it 
and international viewers were immediately like, why? And we honestly didn't understand. We just heard stuff and we were like, I'm not, I'm not, we're not getting what the big deal is about. And we could see that uh, the criticisms were getting louder and people were genuinely angry. And very clearly we were missing context. We did initially hear that uh, the food that was used in one of the episodes um, where King Sojun Se- Sejong, I'm sorry, King Sejong was sitting with a Catholic priest, which is an unlikely thing to happen. But anyway, and treating him to Chinese dishes that was just completely anachronistic and also just why it's highly unlikely to happen in that period of time. So it was clearly a writer's choice. And that was something people really didn't like. And again, it didn't really make a lot of sense initially. And finally, Joshan Exorcist got cancelled. And even right now, most of the comments on the internet that I'm reading, people are outraged that this historical drama that they were probably not going to watch anyway got cancelled because netizens were angry. They still don't have the context. So we decided to have this entire segment to provide you that context. Oh, also, there was a petition to the Blue House. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're still signing that petition. I don't think they have reached the requisite number of... I think it's reached the number of people that they have to, where they have to like actually address it. Okay. But it, people are still signing it. I think the last number I saw was 810,000, but I'm who knows? It might have surpassed that. But I think there was also a whole scandal that happened about, I think there was like a, a Chinese YouTuber who's claimed that kimchi was actually Chinese. No, so it's not that she claimed that kimchi was Chinese. She was cooking kimchi. And talking about um, how this is a Chinese, uh, de- like she is, she just she had no mention of Korea whatsoever. She was like, "This is something that we make here. This is an old Chinese dish." Shall we back up a bit and talk about like the cultural tensions between China and Korea? If we start with the historical context, it will add up to make sense about why there's such a strong reaction to sure. this now. I say we, but I actually mean Anissa. <laughs> I'm sorry. So Anissa's the one who knows the most about this stuff. She's the one who educated us. I still have a lot to learn, but from what I understand from like, you know, East Asian studies and the, the school that I pay too much money for, basically Korea has always kind of lived in the shadow of China and like the dynasties that preceded what is now China. And so like for a long time, they were a tribute kingdom. So they had to like, they had a lot of kings that were subject to the emperor in China where they had to like give them money. And I mean, if you have seen a lot of sagaks, you'll probably know this, although, you know, the history quote unquote in sagaks is very fictionalized, but there is this historical tension where, you know, Korea is the small peninsula. It was in between, you know, China on one side, Japan on the other. They've always been under constant threat of imperialism. Um, and they have been colonized. Like the, you know, there's the Japanese colonization that happened from 1910 to the end of World War II. There's also these historical, you know, tr- sort of treaty, quote unquote, agreements that were basically forced upon them, you know, by earlier dynasties. So that context is always there. And then also, you know, in more recent years, because of China's relations with North Korea and the tension between North and South Korea, actually, it's a war, but, you know, like it's a war that never ended that tension is constantly in kind of there. But then on top of that, you have this, it's called T-H-A-A-D, 
but it's like this missile defense system that was installed in South Korea by the American government that had like actually a lot of people in South Korea were also really not happy about it. But it also really soured a lot of relationships between China and Korea and South Korea. Um, So, I mean, it's really complex and I'm really oversimplifying it. But like, I'm just saying like, this is just the latest in like a sort of history of tension. Um, And there were there was a time when like things were better and there was a lot of intercultural communication and there were a lot of, you know, uh, Chinese actors and singers coming to Korea and and performing and a lot of, uh, you know, Korean performers going to China and having like really amazing careers there and stuff. But in recent years, it's dried up for, for like all these reasons. And then in the early 2000s, there's the China's Northeast Project, which is being talked about quite a lot with regards to the storm. Yeah. So that was, I think, from 2002 to 2007, where they were kind of um, the the CCP, which is the government of China, the Chinese Communist Party, like it was, you know, they have their nationalist project and it's it's not good. You know, like we all know what, what they're doing to Uyghurs. But there, there was an aspect of it, which was like, you want to talk about the Northeast Project? So essentially what the Northeast Project did was it was kind of taking account of the history of the different countries that China has over time claimed belonged under Chinese dynasties historically. And what they started doing was, now this is not something that legitimate Chinese historians have claimed, but a lot of bullshit claims started happening under the uh, Northeast Project. Like it was kind of speculation more than actual historical claims. And the speculations often said stuff like, well, um, Things like Korean, the the Korean Hanbok is uh, uh, actually uh, of Chinese origin, or that kimchi. basically different aspects of <laughs> yeah. kimchi, dif- different aspects of different um, East Asian countries that China wants to claim has had root in their culture. It, it, they pretty much appropriate and uh, claim as their own. So kimchi is a big one, and. So China has often said that, for instance, Hallyu is something, it's it's Chinese and not Korean, the Hallyu wave, that they created it for uh, Korea. Like it only happened because China was consuming their stuff. And that is why a lot of the audience that they had for their market was Chinese. That is not really true. But what ended up happening was that the Korean market became very heavily dependent on China, um, especially for their entertainment export. And China started leveraging that in recent years, which is when once because of the THAAD, once their relationships soured. And then this Northeast project was something that the younger netizens had been basically trolling each other, like the Chinese and the Korean side had been trolling each other over. The Chinese basically claiming random uh, portions of Korean history and being like, well, it was actually Chinese history and you guys basically don't have anything original of your own. And obviously that did a good job of pissing off Koreans as it should. All of that stuff's happening. And then you have this entire entertainment industry that was heavily dependent on the Chinese consumption market. And the Chinese government was like, well, if you won't just cut ties with uh, America and kind of not have this base, then we are not going to buy any of your entertainment products anymore. You can't have shows here. 
we are not going to let your actors work here. Your dramas won't air in our uh, spaces. Basically, they just wanted to cripple the entertainment market. Happily, it didn't get crippled. It, it, this is around the 2014, 2016, when Netflix started showing a lot of interest in Korea, Studio Dragon and other uh, studios with a international outlook cropped up. They started heavily focusing on other Asian markets and also the Western market. So... Korea survived. China couldn't cripple the entertainment market, but they made a pretty valiant effort. And so I'm trying to bring in all of these different aspects together to give you an idea of what Koreans have been going through for at least two decades at this point, And it's been slowly building. There is the cultural attack. There is, you know, your historical attack. There is just constant rhetoric about military. And there is the attack on their entertainment export, which is such a big part of their GDP. And also, like, if you, um, and I was kind of unsure about this when I, I remember when we were doing the What's Up in Drama Land, like, preview for this drama, um, because the, I mean, this is a drama that portrays King Sejong, who is such a, like, a foundational and beloved figure for South Koreans. Like, they were taking a risk just by, like, doing something that was so out, you know, like, his father is, like, possessed by demons. Like, it's just a really out there premise just like center on like a real historical figure that people are so invested in and who is such like a big foundation, you know, like he's the one who invented Hangul, like Koreans really love him. So like it was already risky just to do this kind of drama using that kind of historical figure instead of doing like a fictional king, you know, like or a little known character. Or like, for example, I mean, it's the same writer as Mr. Queen. And with Mr. Queen, they used I mean, they still face criticism for that. But like, for Mr. Queen, he used a king that was historically kind of ridiculed and kind of redeemed him. So it was that's much more acceptable to people, right? I mean, the, yeah. the hardcore um, history purists are still going to have a hard time with that. But like this was kind of touchy already. And then when you have, you know, these additional there was also like with Vincent Vincenzo, there's that one scene where he's eating bibimbap Bibimbap, that like you can't actually buy in korea like it's created by a chinese company and it was like a product placement for people who can buy it uh labels on it it was very clearly meant for the chinese audience Mm. right it's a product that's available in like hong kong and china so like but it's also a korean dish so there's that aspect of you know resisting the like chinese imperialism project i guess in in a way but the real death knell for Joseon Exorcist was that its sponsors and advertisers, every last one of them pulled out. Yes. So. And the, the apology that the production team made that did not bring them back. So mm-hmm. they basically had no money. I just want to put in the number here. There were 20 advertisers mm-hmm. who pulled out almost all together. And sagaks, don't forget, sagaks are expensive. They're it's very like, expensive. You can't do that on a shoestring. It's impossible. Yeah. Chosun Exorcist had already completed 80% of filming. Oh, well, sh- whoa. Yikes. That's a lot Rough. of money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I do feel sorry for the actors because people are like going after the actors and like the actors are the ones yeah, who yeah. have the least amount of power to shape any of this. Who've also made the biggest loss. Yeah. Mm. It's a big blow for their careers. Yeah. So, Yeah. And obviously the crew, who are always the most underappreciated part of any project. This is true. But like the crew, not to downplay their losses, but they can go on to another project without the credit dogging them. Whereas the actors would have that behind them. And I've been reading in places, people are like, oh, you know, um, what's his name? 
the actor I like, Chen Dong Yun. The poem a day guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, um, like, you know, taking him down, like, he should be punished for doing this show and you're like why he based was, on what he didn't yeah. like those scenes and it yeah he wasn't Ugh. even in those scenes for that <laughs> that's true yeah it's difficult i have been seeing some people online talking about how like they've never canceled a drama before and like this is the ch- hill that they choose to die on like what about all the the times when people have died or been seriously injured on set because of bad working conditions what about you know like rapists who still get to go back and you know redeem themselves and be in dramas and like why doesn't any of that ever cause a show to get canceled and like because it's politics it's the weight of so many people mm-hmm. coming out and saying we don't accept this and we don't want this and we're going to make a big noise about it, which unfortunately for problems that are more structural and kind of they're baked into a lot of our daily lives. It's just not very likely that people are going to all of a sudden be like, hey, this is bad. We don't want it, you know, because it's just it becomes an accepted part of our lives. And and it really takes something big and shocking. It's like what we were just talking about with racism, right? Like, Often these are not new problems and no, they're never new problems, but it's just that something happens that sort of shakes people out of their Mm -hmm. complacency and they're like, oh, this is a big problem. And a lot of times after that big noise, everything just goes back Mm -hmm. to the way it was before anyway, even despite all of the protests and the speeches and the articles and the black squares on Instagram. Yeah. There's also that other aspect that was covered in our previous episode with Professor Sirabao Seji, where we talked about how individual cases, when they come out, get judged on individual, not merit, that's the wrong word, but like appearances. Impact. The person, the accused, the uh, accuser, all of their individual characters are all, you know, put in a balance and people weigh whom they like more, who is, who appears to be more likely to be the guilty one it's all like like the winner is chosen opinion. right yeah exactly yeah. and it's it's like a popularity contest but your life is on balance and it's um that's what happens in individual cases so of course shows won't get cancelled over that because shows have the power of changing public opinion in individual cases you just have to make the accuser look bad you just have to say hey they took money from us under the table you can say any number of things you can just yeah you just have to blacken their name so, no, they're not going to cancel a show over a rape ac- accusation or crew members dying. They'd be like, oh, they were just not very careful. We mm-hmm. have like such strict rules on our set, but they just didn't follow it. What do I it's do? It's basically if you get called out, that's what decides your fate. Yeah. Public reaction to you decides whether you get to carry on or not. No, I, I, no, no. It's whether the public reaction makes your financial backing <laughs> right, fall yeah, out. Yeah, that, that money, <laughs> yes. that lack of money then means that you mm. can no longer go on. Yeah. So it's all about money because in the end. If we have a minute to um, quickly talk about also, like, do you remember The Man Who Dies to Live? And yeah. the way, like, we don't need to talk about what was controversial about that show, but that show got pulled from every international provider, every single one. You could not watch that anywhere. But it carried on airing in Korea. Yep. The domestic audience was fine with it. They didn't have a problem with that. They enjoyed the show. And in the end, that show survived because of its because it didn't lose its financial backing, I guess. Like the people who were paying for that show, whatever they lost through international licensing fees or whatever, it didn't affect the show. Also, it had a lower budget, I'm sure, because it was not a... Oh, and I suppose it had its foreign bits. Anyway, 
the show survived. Yeah, but I mean, you're right. Like the what they would have gotten from international markets pales in comparison to the money that they were getting from domestic advertisers. Mm. So, and those people didn't leave. So. Yeah. Was that a point? Did I make a point? I'm not sure if I made a point. Yeah, you made a point. <laughs> yeah, like in, yeah. international viewers okay. created a ruckus, so it was pulled from, say, Vicky. I think it was airing on Vicky at that point. V, v- uh, you, I think. You, I yeah. think. And it was pulled. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you couldn't actually catch it anywhere else. And View actually is interesting because View is, it started off as primarily being used by other East Asian countries. So like well, Taiwan. View is like Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, all of yeah. those countries, like the Southeast Asian countries as well. Mm-hmm. And massive Muslim population there who yeah. were not okay with that. And, yeah. and they made themselves hard. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense that it would be pulled. So basically, yeah, as an audience, we have power, but we only have power if enough of us are <laughs> to a point yeah. at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moving on to a quick update on what's happening with River Where the Moon Rises. We all know that Ondal has switched faces. Um, <laughs> and now uh, producers have this uh, series where the first six episodes uh, had Jisoo playing Ondal and... From episode seven onwards, they have uh, nine moving on. So what they're doing is that they're pulling the first six episodes. They're reshooting it with nine moves so that you basically. Yeah. OK, so Jisoo's not going to be in any part of. Yeah, um, they had series. already pulled. So like you could no longer watch episodes one to six and any of the places where they're playing reruns or like v- video on demand or anything. Um, and then viewers were like, we want to watch episodes one through six. So they're like, well, now we're going to film one through six so you can watch the entire drama on your like streaming service or whatever. I have to say that kind of makes me more likely to actually go back to this show. Yeah, me too. Agreed. Just the effort they're putting in. <laughs> yeah. And also it is hard as a viewer, and this again, not to sort of upplay viewer pain, but it is hard to adjust from having seen one face to then seeing the same character in another face. But if we start that drama with him, mm. I, that's cool. I'm, And plus, you know, I, I've heard from people who are still watching the show that he's gotten really good. So maybe by the time he finishes the rest of the show, his like skill level would have sort of um, gone up enough for the first six episodes to actually be really good as well. Yeah, I, I, really, I really hope so. And also, they did this really smart thing. Before Nine Wu's uh, actual debut in episode seven, they took pieces of like clips of him playing Andal in like as they were reshooting everything. And they released that kind of bunch of clips on online so audiences could have a taste of what his performance was like. And it was actually good enough that a lot of people were like, oh, I wasn't going to watch this anymore. But I think I will go back and watch it now. So, yeah. So, Nine Wu, he's been doing his best from the moment he got on set. So, yeah. I had an unfounded prejudice against his face, <laughs> which we have covered before. But, Is that um, because of Mr. Queen? No, it's not. It, it's because of that actor in Reply 1997 who reminds oh, yeah. me of Nine Wu. <laughs> and I've told you, I have really, really bad feelings towards that guy. Um, yeah. So... Although I see no resemblance, but I respect oh, your feelings. They're, they're, the shape of their face, the way they speak, the way he smiles, the, the entire mouth area looks the same. Oh, now maybe I have I to look seen up the actor enough. because I, I'm just, I'm just, uh, audiences are confused now. <laughs> That's true. We should say who it is. <laughs> 
Soingook's older brother in the in Ansumi yes. 97. He was also a baddie in a in, in a Saguk I watched that I can't remember. Was it Princess? Yeah, he Man had the face else? that was sort of baddie. So it was uh, Song Jong Ho. Oh. And Song Jong Ho, he's a perfectly good actor. It's just that one character in 1997 that just <laughs> totally soured me because here is this full grown man smiling almost leering at an 18-year-old who is the sister of his dead girlfriend and she's still in school. I have a really bad gut reaction to this Wasn't guy. he also I'm her a, teacher? No, not her no? teacher. Okay. He was uh, sewing ghost teacher. They had like oh, a right. separation of male and female students. So oh. I guess technically she wasn't his student, but they were still in the same school. Hmm. Uh, anyway. On that fine note. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 1997 still remains my favorite reply though so you know do what you will with that information you know oh, it's 2021 <laughs> I am waiting for them to make a reply 2002 it's come on why. it's my year let's do it <laughs> I just want them to get to 2000s okay I mean <laughs> any any year <laughs> no it has to be 2002 <laughs> okay okay 2002 <laughs> But I don't know if they would though, Saya, because they were pulling so much from their own life experiences, the mm. writers and the directors. I, I'm not sure that they would be willing to. There was a World Cup in that year, come on. That, that, that is true. Yeah, 2002 would be a good one because of the World Cup, definitely. Yeah. So moving on to the upcoming K-dramas of April, um, just a quick note. Uh, monthly house or monthly magazine house that was supposed to come out in March has been pushed to the summer and it's like there's no definite air date so um, I'm sad about that I was really looking forward (laughs) to that but anyway just that's just a quick update Um, and now we're going to go into April premieres all right and in April premieres we're going to start with drama world 2 finally if you were waiting for it (laughs) None of us were, <laughs> but it's releasing on um, April 2 and it has a much bigger budget than the first drama world did. So it's quite possible that the story and the acting might get better. Well, they've got, these, they've got these huge, uh, they've got these really big name cameos and they've got Hajiwan yeah, and like, they Hajiwan haven't even, they haven't, yeah, they haven't even released. I mean, you know, the, what's his name? Shonji Lake is very excited about his lineup of special appearances and stuff. So That's just for a curiosity, just for curiosity's sake, I would be interested in knowing who that lineup is but not enough to watch it but can i also give a shout out to um our listener friend and patron egads who got into drama land through this show i think did i get the right person that is the right person right oh one host. i'm not <laughs> I don't sure remember. i'm f- quite sure i don't know I, I'm uh, like we, 90, 95% we will trust sure. You, but Egads, if we have wronged you, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we're, we're blaming it on Saya, so. <laughs> I, I will hide under the table when the blame comes by. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is doesn't sound like a good idea, but I guess if people want to watch it, they want to watch it. I, I will put in, though, that uh, before uh, the first Ram World was coming out, I was really, really enthralled by the concept. I think all of us were. Yeah, and then we watched uh, it. Yeah, and then we watched it. Um, uh, uh, I Look, we may be better directing and seriously a different 
casting of the central character of of Claire Duncan might have Liv been Hewson. She wasn't the right person. I'm sure she's a amazing person. She just didn't channel, yeah. <laughs> and she's still the heroine. I mean, I, she does. She has done some TV work since so then, I'm, I'm so maybe she's become a better actress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about the show as I watched it and why I didn't enjoy it. Do you think it sort of felt a bit too American? But I'm American and I didn't like it either. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's but Anissa, it, it, felt, it felt like American. It felt like American TV. And honestly, that is what it felt like to me. It felt like uh, uh, not even American yeah, TV. Meant, it felt by like the way. <laughs> knockoff American TV or American TV parodying Korean it dramas. Was like, it was like cheap American TV. Yeah. Is that too mean? No, that's exactly what it was like. Like, a, you know, somebody's university m- film project. So, okay, so A, I mean, this they've obviously been, like, in the gym and they're beefed up now, so, like, it won't be cheap American TV anymore. <laughs> but I also was really, un- and I mean, we've talked about this, but I was uncomfortable with, like, the kind of Orientalist overtones of the whole thing, which, I don't know, I, I really don't have a lot of faith in the in the idea that they might be better about that this time, but hopefully it'll at least be, you know, enjoyable. We will definitely keep an eye on it. Yeah. Yeah. This is produced by Studio Phoenix. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, that dissolves <laughs> a That's moment. very entertaining. I'm just like, I mean, for, for our listeners who may not be reading the credits all the time, Studio Dragon is maybe the biggest um, production house at the moment in the dramas that we watch. They're like, they're behind everything. Mm-hmm. If Especially there's a show that you've Netflix loved. Originals. Mm, yeah. Like, if there's a show that you've really loved lately, chances are Studio Dragon was behind it. So, you know. Especially if it's an expensive show. Mm, like, with the really prestige ones. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Studio Phoenix, I'm here for you, but not for this show. <laughs> <laughs> Arise from the ashes. I like the name choice, for sure. <laughs> yeah, All right. definitely. All right, so, yeah, the story remains more or less the same, but apparently they're going to be dipping into... Two uh, dramas this time. So Claire Duncan at the end of Drama World 1, she ended up back in the real world along with one of the characters of uh, Drama World. (laughs) And um, then apparently like in this particular, in this new Drama World 2, there are two dramas, one of which is supposed to have like a werewolf vampire. (laughs) Okay. I don't know, romance. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but there are... And apparently there's another one that's more cowboyish. Well, weird shenanigans happen. And um, apparently they are going super genre with the dramas now. And (laughs) yeah. Okay, let's see how it pans out. Honestly, I'm not not going to be mean to something that has not (laughs) even released a trailer yet. Are you going to watch it? I'll try. And also, like, I I feel like I don't want to be too mean to it as well because it does have a lot of affection for drama fans and even though like a lot of it is cringy oh, you can I see the affection it. it's like you know a fanfic like, of a drama sorry <laughs> yeah it kind of is so like because you can see that love there like even though it's like really awkward and some of the things about it are kind of problematic like i don't want to be too mean to it because it's like oh like you know you're you're trying That's to true. like I this is know. somebody's baby and you know it's Actually, I, I feel exactly the same I mean, way. I they're always somebody's baby, but I feel like it's... Yeah. You do you, show. Yeah. You it, do it you. It feels a little bit more like the fandoms. It means it's like a hybrid baby between like the K-drama <laughs> world yeah. and the fandom world that like they like had a kid yeah. and it's this thing. So... Um, yeah. It should not have existed. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to be like, less mean for us. 
sorry. Hey, you know what? It might not be bad. Like you say, we can't actually say anything without having seen it. If if there is a general positive reaction towards this drama from people I trust, not just not there are like plenty of people who would who like drama world the first two. I don't trust everybody. Which is, it's valid. You can like it. You can like what yeah, you like. you can like it, but I don't have to like it because you like it. <laughs> My point is that if there's a general positive reaction to this drama, then I promise I'm going to watch it and do a proper review. There, I have committed. <laughs> and it's also like, it's only five hours. So, I mean, it's not like, it, it's not like it's super long and it's... Is it even five hours? It's 10, 30 minute episodes. This, uh, I'm yeah. clicking on my drama list and it's eight 20 minute episodes. Oh, really? Yeah, but um, I think the Forbes article said 10 30 minute episodes. Oh, okay. That. Yeah. So, so, regardless, it's on the shorter side. It's yeah. like a long Basically. movie or a two part movie. We have seen longer Sisyphus episodes, so it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Did we do this last next time? Drama. Unfairly <laughs> holding, yeah, holding this sort of baby kindergarten drama up to like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> professor. Yeah, we should, we should. I, I, yeah. we should stop. I should stop doing that. That's true. Also, go watch Sisyphus, guys. It's suddenly gotten super good. <laughs> Not suddenly. It's been working its way there. Yeah, sorry. Uh, let's uh, move on. Apologies, of course. All right. So, uh, all right. The next one's yours, sir. The next one is Taxi Driver, which is airing on the 9th of April. It's a Friday Saturday drama on SBS, and it is the one with Lee Jae-hoon and Isom. This is also the one where the actress dropped out with a bullying scandal, right? Yeah, but it was a more minor role. Yeah, it wasn't right. the, one of the main roles. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the story of a mysterious taxi service that takes revenge on behalf of victims who are unable to get justice from the law. Uh, Kim Do-ki, who is... Hold on, let me check the names. Okay. So Lee Jae-hoon plays Kim Do-ki, who is a mysterious driver for the taxi company whose mother was murdered. And the female lead is played by Isom, obviously. Let me say that sentence again. <laughs> and Isom plays Kang Hana, who is a passionate attorney. And the third character in this trio is called Goon, who is played by Pyo Yejin, who was the person who replaced Yoju the... I don't remember the actual uh, idol girl's name. I remember her yeah. as Yoju the as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yoju the got trapped. And Pyo Yejin, mm-hmm. who we know from that show, Fight My Way... And what's wrong with Secretary Kim? Maybe I made that up. Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) She's really cute. She is very cute. She plays an IT specialist while others call her a hacker. Cool. And along with Lee Jae-hoon, she works as part of the Rainbow Taxi Company to solve people's problems. And this was originally a webtoon of the same name. And I'm excited for this because I like Lee Jae-hoon. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) But I'm a bit iffy about the screenwriter who is a director-turned-screenwriter, uh, whose last project was Fabricated City, which I didn't really like. It was that film with Ji Chang-uk. There wasn't oh. anything objectively wrong with the film. The film was fine. It was just a very male kind of film. Mm. But also, from what I can see, he doesn't really have any drama credits. He's yeah. almost exclusively done movies. I guess we could call so. him a rookie, right? At least a drama rookie. Anyway, yeah. I like the premise. I like the mm. actors. I'm going to check it out. One day, maybe in autumn. Because <laughs> Ramadan is coming. I'm not watching yeah. any new dramas in Ramadan. <laughs> yeah, me neither. So that's like, that takes us to like mid May. 
Yeah, this could be interesting. I, I I just really don't know what to expect because the writer is an unknown quantity, basically. Yeah, but even with known quantity writers, this is true. But this pairing is great. Like I love yeah. Isam, especially since the last yeah. thing we saw her in, which uh, was it? This life is our first. It was for me. Yeah, uh, for me also. I don't know if she's been in something since then, but I really like her. And this is like this is a pairing with promise. I hope it's good. Yeah, it is. I see a lot of promise in this drama and I'm, I promise I'm taking the premise seriously and this is not what I'm really thinking it's about. But for some reason, I have this visual stuck in my head of like a killer taxi that's going around the city murdering bad people. <laughs> like murderous Herbie. <laughs> I, I do like the idea of, because I mean, we're so used to vigilante heroes being like, you know, Batman and people like this who are like these, even if they're not superhuman like Superman, but they're like, you know, they have a lot of extra skills and they're like super rich and they're super yeah. powerful and they're, yeah. but um, this is just like a taxi driver. So it's like much more of an everyman vigilante hero, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me. But yeah, I'm also really excited for Isam. Like I, I love Ijehun, but I am more here for Isam, definitely. Okay, um, I, I know we should move on, but I have uh, something to say to that, Anissa. The reason that uh, these superheroes are usually people with like some kind of, you know, talent or riches or something or the other is because that is what allows them to escape the law according I to mean, these I stories. Know, I know right? that. Yeah. No, no. So if this taxi driver is not also like he was doing all of this vigilantism is also not a genius I, I will be very surprised. <laughs> it's Ijehun. Either he'll be a complete dork or he'll yeah. be a genius. No you're right. He's probably going to have a super powered brain. That's, <laughs> he'll yeah. have like the map of the city will be like embedded in his head. I, I think you've cracked it. I, I mean, well I mean most taxi drivers. <laughs> yeah, they, they He'll be like a have. black taxi black cab driver. Uh, do you guys know about like the knowledge? I do. And st- yes, <laughs> yes. I've heard of them. <laughs> it's basically maybe that's what he'll be. Just for our listeners London has a very famous black cab culture and to become a black ca- a licensed black cab driver you have to take this special exam which is sort of colloquially known as the knowledge where you basically have to have google maps in your brain for the whole city wow so you basically are a map genius <laughs> yeah i mean at, at minimum he will be a map genius i'm expecting <laughs> all right should we go into the next one yes so the next one is called Real Estate Exorcism. I've also seen it referred to as Sell Your Haunted House in some places. I like that title. Yeah, I, th- I actually think I like Sell Your Haunted House better. But the original Korean title was actually... It's Daebak Budong yeah, San, which is not- just like <laughs> great or amazing real estate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the name of the real estate office. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, yeah. So anyway, it's the premise is it's about... Real estate brokers who exercise and clean out buildings in which ghosts frequent and people have died in. Yeah, it is the name. So it's called Daebak Real Estate. So although Daebak Real Estate's boss and exorcist Hong Jia, who is played by Jiang Nara, seems perfect with her beauty and intelligence, she's actually a hot-tempered exorcist whose fists come before her words. <laughs> her ability to exercise has been passed down from her mother. And Owen Baum, who is played by Jung Young-hwa of Your Beautiful Fame, is a con artist who doesn't believe in ghosts but uses them to earn money. He has the perfect set of skills for a con artist, being able to use his great observation and reasoning skills to determine the causes and effects, as well as future predictions for any situation. So he's like one of those like psychics who just like ask you leading questions, <laughs> tell you about your life. 
Um, Hong Jia will work with Oinbum to, in order to solve the secret behind her mother's death 20 years ago. So you have this like person who actually works with the supernatural and fights them and another person who's just like benefiting from people <laughs> who believe in the supernatural to make money. Yeah. So you have like the, the fake shaman versus the real shaman <laughs> <situation>. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, so I, I just want to point this out that Anissa already uh, said this, that uh, Jung Young Kwa, who is the hero here, he was in You're Beautiful and it's Shino. He's the, he's the second lead. I hope people know who that is. If you're a K-pop person, he's the lead vocalist of Sea and Blue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, a bit disappointed that it's not a music drama with him in it because that is his strong point. Yeah. He might end up breaking into a song. I, I only really want to see him singing. I, I, I mean, his acting is okay, but I don't find him to be a compelling actor. He so, may have um, grown in the time since we saw him last, which was Mire's choice, I believe. That was like 2014 or that's something. true, but I also, I just feel like Chang Nara deserves someone who can... You know, like okay, when you really put it like that, it I can't disagree. As, a, as a somebody <laughs> yeah. who's playing across yeah. from her, you know, like she deserves better. So, I think the last time she had that was like Go Back Couple. She had like pretty good co-stars in that one, but I yeah. don't. Oh, know. She, f- last Empress, she, she had good co-stars in that, except oh, that they on. disappeared. I mean, Yuk and yeah. the story was, <laughs> was the story that? was what like nuts, but like the cast was great. <laughs> True. But I, I mean, in that, you know, that partnership way, she, so mm-hmm. I, I so often find Jangnara paired with actors who are great in their own way, but just not, not up to her heft. So um, I'm kind of hoping that Shinu really steps up. Well, the character description <laughs> kind of reminds me a little bit of her character in I Remember You, um, aka Hello Monster. True. So, That's and, true. you know, so in Gook, you can't, nobody can... No, absolutely. But again, dude, I'm sorry, but that was not a romance I was rooting for. They just did not seem very interested in each other. Not as a romance, not as a romance, but as like a partnership. I thought they were really good. That's true. Yeah, it would have worked better as a platonic partnership. I agree. Come 100%. I actually don't even remember the romance. I forgot that there was one. (laughs) It's just I just really liked them as... as, I um, was in the background and very forced. Kind of yeah. wish that didn't happen. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm probably gonna I always end up at least trying out whatever Jagnara's in. Um and then I occasionally I get hooked into watching the entire drama. So did you watch Oh My Baby? I watched about halfway through. It was actually oh. pretty good. I got distracted <laughs> by something else. <laughs> but I, I have no complaints against Oh My Baby. All right. So the next one is Law School, which releases on April 14th. First of all, the most important information is that it has Kim Bum. <laughs> so for those of you who was waiting for his return after, dang, what was it called? The Gumiho one that you love. Yeah, what yeah, was it called? Tale of, it, the it cur- Tale of the Night Curse. Tale of the Night Tales. Tale of the Nine Tales. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. So after Tale of the Nine Tales, if you guys were looking forward to Kim Bum, I know I was. Um, so he's coming back as a law school student in law school. <laughs> um, all right, so the Shockingly. Yeah. All right, the students and the faculty of South Korea's top law school become involved in a highly unusual case. Yang Jong-hun, this senior lawyer, uh, played by the actor Kim Young-min, 
is a criminal law professor and a former elite prosecutor whose harsh words make him the professor to steer clear of. At the same time, there's something compelling about his strict teaching methods and his refusal to accept less than the best from his future juniors in the legal profession. Now, Kim Bum is playing this character Han Jun Wee, a first-year law student. A first-year law student? Isn't he a bit old to be a first-year law student? <laughs> nah, he looks like a baby. He does, Lou. He does have baby face. No, and also, like, it's possible that he came to law school after, after another Ami. career, right? Lots yeah. of people do that. Yeah, okay, good point. I'm sorry. He's at the top of his class. He's a natural leader, has good looks and easy charm. It seems like he's the perfect man on paper, but there's an unexpected side to him that remains well hidden. And then we have Kang Sol. Okay, so the thing with Kang Sol is that there are two characters <laughs> named Kang Sol in this. Kang Sol A and Kang Sol B. Kang Sol A is played by... Ru Hei Young, who seems to be the main counsel, and then secondary counsel uh, is played by Lee Suk Young. Okay, so with counsel A, she's another first-year law student, and she's overcome a lot of hardships in life to get admission to the school. She has she's made to feel inferior because of her financial situation amidst the wealth and talent that surrounds her. Uh, in law school, but eventually her passion will enlighten her on what it truly takes to be a good lawyer. And finally, you have Kim Yun-suk, who's a civil law professor who was once the head of the school's free legal clinic. Her natural air of authority and freewheeling personality earned her the reputation for being a master in court. Known for being a highly relatable professor, she is the sole colleague Young Jong-hoon dares to confide in. I'm sorry, I, did I mention the actor's name? Kim Yun-suk is played by Lee Jong-yoon. And I like that these two professors have a, a dynamic already where uh, you have jong Hoon being like the strict professor who wants the best out of his students. And you have Kim Yun-suk who's more of a, possibly a more fun teacher and maybe, you know, the one who understands the students better. But let's see, that's that's the kind of character vibe I'm getting. And and these two seems to be seem to be friends, which is just, I, I always like it when they make the uh, teachers or professors have life outside the students in these uh, stories. Honestly, to me, the professors seem more interesting. Right? Uh, also, because these two actors are such powerhouses, like I just am interested to even to see them talking to each other, like in yeah. their roles. So absolutely, I mean, I I last remember uh, this actress uh, Lee Jung Yoon in Hi Bye Mama, and uh, she was playing this. She kind of had a guest role. I think she was a she was kind of like a shaman type. Anyway, I really liked her there, but there was something else that I had seen her in, and I'm trying to. Uh, she was in Parasite. She oh, that's where I know her. She, she was amazing so, in Parasite. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it was a very different role for her because she always plays like these comedic side character roles in K dramas, and then in Parasite, she was like, wow, <laughs> like she played a totally different role. I mean, she's an amazing actress. Yeah. We've seen her in lo a lot of stuff, actually. Apparently, we've uh, she's done cameo roles for like Fight My Way, While You Were Sleeping, Miss Hamurabi, Mr. Shun Sunshine, My Strange. She usually plays a mother character. So I'm really happy that she's getting like a full fleshed out role to herself. So yeah, really excited about that. Okay, yeah, they haven't yeah. exactly given us much about the story here, so we can only go by character impressions. Seems a little slice of lifey, doesn't it? Sort of like suits, but yeah, that's procedural a bit, though mm. probably. Also, the only other credit for the writer is Judge versus Judge, which I didn't watch personally, but um, I think that was that was supposed to be good, right? Judge versus Judge. I don't think any of us watched it. 
No, I don't we, think any of us watched didn't. it. No. I remember reading a review. It wasn't like exemplary, but it was supposed to be pretty like decent. So we don't yeah, know anything solid. bad about <laughs> their work. The next show is Undercover which airs on April the 23rd. That's also a Friday-Saturday drama, and it's on JTBC. And this has the return of a couple of my favourites. Mm. <laughs> so it's Kim Hyun-ju, who I really loved and watched. Um, was it two years ago now? Well, that's a long time. Um, anyway, so so this stars Ji Jin-hee, Kim Hyun-ju, Yeonwoo Jin uh, in main roles, and the story goes... So Han Jung-hyun, who is played by Ji jin has been hiding his identity for a long time. And Kim hyun ju plays a human rights lawyer called Choi yeon soo who becomes the first head of the Senior Civil Servant Corruption Investigations Unit, well, that's a mouthful, to fight for justice. So a fierce battle begins to protect love and justice from the huge forces that dominate and shake the country for profit. Well, this is really going for the big ideas. <laughs> The drama is expected to dig into the reality of power and closely follow the story of human multifacetedness hidden in it, as well as discuss what's right and wrong. Jijini plays an agent at the Agency for National Security, who's been hiding his identity, we already said that, um, and he's known for his extraordinary quickness and boldness. And he falls in love with Kim Hyun-ju, and they eventually marry. But his secret life gets caught up in an uncontrollable whirlwind when his wife becomes nominated for the post at the corruption unit. This is a remake of um, a BBC series by the same name, which I looked up and it's not a show I would ever watch in its BBC version, but I would watch this one. Yeah. So basically, like, she is being forced to investigate something in her job that ends up revealing his secret past. It sounds a bit like something between like, um, uh, oh gosh, I had both of the show's Flower names in my evil? head now. Yeah, Flower of Evil and the You and No One. The Oh, The Spies Who Loved Me? Spies Who Loved Me, yeah. It sounds like a mm. mashup of the two. Possibly. I, I really like the casting of the younger uh, Han Jung-hyun, which is uh, Yeon Woo Jin, and I haven't seen Yeon Woo Jin in something decent in ages. I mean, I know he had that sagok with... Uh, What's her name? Gun, Joseon Gunman, was it? No, no Park Queen Min for Young, Seven Park Days. Min Young. Queen for Seven Days, Park yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but because it had a sad ending, I kind of uh, aborted right before the ending. <laughs> um, because I knew what was coming. So, yeah, I cowered it out. But anyway, I, I kind of really want to see him in something I don't have to nope out of. And hey, maybe. Let's see. <laughs> I'm just really looking forward to Kim Hyun-ju doing a role like this. I really like her. What have I seen her in? A face looks familiar. She's so amazing. I love her. She's she was been in Watcher. a ton of... Yeah, she was yeah, one of the main characters in Watcher. But she's one of those actresses who can basically do oh, anything. Like, she, she can was... do a serious drama. She can do a comedy. She can do a rom-com. So she can, I, you know, I, like... I remember her as Gujun He's uh, Gujun Pyo's older sister. As Ooh, Gujun from wow. uh, Boys of Flowers. <laughs> that's going wow, back a long way. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I thought the face looked familiar, but I couldn't place it. Yeah, so that's that's where I haven't watched Watcher, so that, I just remembered I that I never went back to Designated Survivor, which I always planned to go back to, which is what Jijini, which is where I last saw Jijini. Actually, that's it. That was his last drama role. Should go back to that. I I, I watched uh, quite a few episodes of that, but I for some reason completely forgot about that drama. <laughs> 
It's interesting because I watched a lot of these two earlier in their career where they used to play romantic leads. Mm. And now they've both moved on to like doing serious political dramas. And I just haven't really seen anything recent that they've done. So it'd be interesting to like see them now. And now that you don't careers. hate So Gang Jun, you can watch Watcher. That's true. I've, <laughs> I've, I've very much increased my fondness for So Gang Jun um, after when the weather's fine. So there, that drama was good for something after all. The drama okay. was fine, but the ending was bad. Ending yeah. was just the drama was good. It's just the, the drama ending was that was better the than good. It was excellent. It just yeah. ended sad. terribly. That was sad. <sighs> okay, so the last drama that is coming out in April is Dark Hole, which, despite its rather uh, <laughs> depressing <Ominous>. sounding <laughs> name, yeah, it's a very ominous name. Um, I'm actually excited about this, despite how dark it is, because I wonder it stars. Why. Yeah. <laughs> Lee Jin Hyuk. <laughs> Our award-winning Lee Jin Hyuk. Yes. He wins the award for being himself because he's just that amazing. And it's about a group of survivors who have to fight for their lives against mutants that are created when humans breathe a mysterious dark smoke from a sinkhole. Thus, the name Dark Hole. Um, Lee Hwa Sun, who is played by Kim Ok Bin, is a police detective in the Seoul Regional Investigation Unit whose life is turned upside down when she receives a phone call from her husband's murder, telling her to come to Mujishi, which is a place. However, the people in Mujishi have been transformed into monsters after breathing in the, the dark smoke, um, and she has to not only fight to survive, but also battle her fear in order to catch her husband's murderer. And Yu Tehan, who is played by Lee Jun Hyuk, is a native of Mujishi and is a wreck car driver. Um, he has a carefree personality and likes to joke around, but he also has a strong sense of justice. He Used to be a police officer. He had to quit due to a scandal, but he's proud of his days in the force. Um, and he meets Ihua-san when she comes to Mujishi and devotes his life to saving others from danger. So this sounds dark, but also fun in a weird <laughs> way. Like they're going to team up to take down monsters. I can get behind that. These two are amazing. Like the cast is amazing. Yeah. This is going to be more horror than it is mystery. So he, I have an observation here. I, I watched the trailer and this is very definitely a zombie movie, but they're oh. a zombie drama, but they're not calling it a zombie drama. Oh. They're just calling them monsters. And I don't understand why. Zombies not mentioned anywhere, but just interesting. Look at the promo shots, the stills that they have released. Look at the trailer. Those are zombies. Huh. <laughs> that has sealed my decision about whether or not I'm going to watch it. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> Well, just to um, give you a sense of the aesthetic of this drama, it's going to be a 12-episode OCN drama. It's OCN, so. of course. It's OCN, yeah. Yeah. And it's from the writer but, of Save Me slash Rescue Me. So, again, oh no. yeah. dark. Oh, oh, dear. Yeah, dark. it's going to be super dark. So yeah. I'm, I will probably regret my decision to at least watch one episode. But <laughs> I wonder if the reason why they're not calling them zombies is because you don't have to, like, get bitten to get the zombie virus. Oh, they're just, like, oh, inhale yeah. the smoke. <laughs> and then they become, you know... But if, if humans are shuffling at you and giving you like jump scares, those are zombies. <laughs> yeah, that also qualifies as horror if there are jump scares and I will not watch it. But maybe the person who made this doesn't like zombies because of the biting aspect. And so they're like, let me do like a non-biting zombie. Like, I would do that so I can relate. So Anissa, when they're trying to come and attack you, what do you think they're going to do to you if not bite you? But I you wouldn't know. become one of them by being bitten, yeah, right? Exactly. You only become one by, you know, taking a snuff. You know, somehow I don't think zombie victims care for that technical <laughs> distinction. They would die human and not monsters. <laughs> 
I guess the, I, no, I mean, I, it changed. I mean, I know we're getting way too like granular on this, but like it changes the threat to like just being the hole rather than like the people who come out of the hole are like spreading this. You know what I mean? So the only people who are, who are getting this transformation happening to them are the ones who are like actually exposed to the smoke rather than like anyone who has that monstrousness can just spread it. Like this just makes it more contained to that geographical location, which I think will probably change the story a little bit. Ah, yeah, that that is actually a good point in terms of plot development, as it as in that it does limit it to one geographical location. See, nerd arguments can have sensible <laughs> conclusions. <laughs> but like, like I was going somewhere, so I'm saying. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm just, go on. I'm just looking at this. Uh, it has like it's. I'm curious about why its alternate title is another class. Like, what does that mean? Another class of human? Another class of monsters? Another... Can it be a Mm. comedy, please? That was probably not going to happen. Not with this Uh, writer, I don't think. I'm annoyed that Eugene Yuk is coming back as a a detective. Oh, they also did Strangers from Hell. (laughs) Exactly! This is is straight up horror. (laughs) It's not going to be a comedy. Yeah. Also, this uh, director comes from movie background and... Yeah, that's more suited to horror, that directing Definitely. style. <laughs> well, you guys t- check it out and tell me if I can <laughs> handle it or not. <laughs> I don't know, man. A zombie movie or a zombie drama has to be like really good to catch my attention. Same. I normally don't watch zombie things, so... Yeah. I didn't, Burma, why are you saying, yeah, you always watch zombie things? <laughs> well, for instance, I didn't watch... Um, what didn't I watch? I didn't watch Search. And that's okay. That's, that's a monster not zombie. One. See, I watched that, or at least I watched half of I it. I feel like you're the zombie representative <laughs> on this very zombie light <laughs> podcast, Roma, So I don't know why you're saying that. <laughs> I'm saying I have standards. Search was nothing to do with zombies. That was like a mutation, and people turned into like werewolf type creatures with red eyes, and you know, it wasn't okay. It's a uh, monster I one. Know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Eugene Yuck is going to lead me down a path that I might regret is, is the conclusion to this segment. <laughs> that it is. But I also like, I have faith in his selection of projects. That's true. So. Wait, you're saying this after The Lies Within? It wasn't bad. It was just too gory for me. I, m- like my complaint about his projects is not that they're bad. I just don't want to see him getting hurt anymore. That's, my, that's my personal my feeling. My complaint about that show and him is that he was barely in it. Does he um, die? We can't tell you. You have to watch it. That's you a spoiler. You kind of told me already. He dies, doesn't he? No, I can't tell you. I'm not even oh. going to let this face give it away. It was a good Fine. show. It was like a genuinely good show. And it had okay. Imingi. Why wouldn't you watch it? Because of the genre. I, yeah, no, I found out what was going to happen at the end. And I was just like, e- not even for Imingi can I go through this much gory violence. I just started violence. watching Beyond Evil, but only because Sai has been raving about it's it. It's so, so good. Um, sorry, Miss I Love You, Jingu. Yeah, so I started me? it. I'm on episode one. And yes, it's 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 very good. But I, I'm still wondering if I should commit to episode two. All right, guys. We need to wrap this up now. You, More you. on your jingu later. And now. And now. <laughs> and now it's time to return to our regularly scheduled lives. So if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Dramas Overflow. Or you can find us individually. You can find me at Not Now Sire. And you can find me at Anissa Khalifa underscore. And you can find me, Borma, at Festa Fasta. And you can find us on Instagram at Dramas Over Flowers underscore. 
And you can search for us on Facebook, Dramas Over Flowers, or you can come on our blog and it's called dramasoverflowers.net. Well, it's not called dramasoverflowers.net. <laughs> the address is dramasoverflowers.net because we couldn't get .com. We're still trying. Okay. No, we've made our peace with .net. We live there now. Silent. You yeah. made your piece. I'm still stalking the person <clears throat> or trying to stalk the person who has .com. Someday I might prevail. <laughs> <laughs> and you can email us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com Dramas Over Flowers is part of the Frolic Podcast Network Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts And that's a wrap people Thank you for listening Bye, Bye. Bye. Bye.